The overall theme of 2 Corinthians is that God is the God of all comfort. We saw in chapter 1, verse 3, that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, we often think of comfort in terms of sympathy, and sympathy is good. It's a good quality to have, to be sympathetic. But sympathy is a feeling, whereas comfort is an action. God doesn't just pat us on the head and say, hey, I feel for you, uh, I really feel for you. No, he comes to be with us, he comes to be in us, and to give us full comfort in the face of our trials and to give us triumph over them. Comfort is an action. And action is something we certainly see in the life of Paul. His heart for others is on full display here in chapter 2 as we see compassion in action demonstrated in three areas. So we're going to see that this morning as we look at all of chapter 2. And we begin first by seeing love for the church. Paul has a love for the church. Now keep in mind, this is a continual flow of thought from chapter 1. All the chapters and verses that are inserted in our Bibles, that wasn't in the original letter. This is all one letter from Paul. He's continuing the same idea as he begins here in verse 1. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Paul had told the church in Corinth that he would stop by the way, uh, on the way to Macedonia to visit them. And then on his way back through, he would stop and visit them again. However, his plans changed. And as a result, some in the church in Corinth were saying, well, Paul isn't trustworthy because he says one thing and he does another. But there was a reason Paul didn't come back through that second time to visit them. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I didn't come there again in order to spare you. The last time Paul was in Corinth, there was conflict. There was sin in the church, and he had to confront it. And because of that, he didn't want to come too soon and have to deal with all of that again. That's why he says, here, I would not come again to you in sorrow. He determined that he would not uh, have another sorrowful visit with the Corinthians. Verse 2, he continues, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Paul also knew that another painful visit would not be good for him. So he thought it best to give them a little space, give them some room to repent, to, to correct their, their mistakes, and to get their act together. He didn't want to have to rebuke them and admonish them all the time. So Paul knew that another visit of the same kind would be of little bit benefit to either himself or the church. And knowing that he wasn't going to visit them, Paul instead wrote them a letter. He alludes to it there, verse 3, and I wrote this very thing to you. Now, where is this letter that he's speaking of? We don't have it. It would technically be the third letter to the Corinthians. Just to kind of recap, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Paul wrote four letters to the church in Corinth. We only have two of them in Scripture. The first letter we don't have. His second letter is what we call 1 Corinthians. He wrote this third letter he's referring to here. And this letter, 2 Corinthians, is actually his fourth letter to them. But God obviously knew which letters he wanted encapsulated in the scriptures that are part of the, the holy scriptures that we have the inspired word of God. The other two letters were very important. It was important to the church in Corinth, but not to be included in the scriptures. So he knew what was important to be preserved. 
So he continues, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Paul hoped that his letter would get all the painful work out of the way. And then when he did visit them personally, it would be more of a pleasant visit because they would have taken advantage of the opportunity they had to get things right. Sometimes one of the best things we can do when we love someone is to give them space. Uh, for those of you who are married, you understand what I'm talking about. You know, you come home or you both come home and one of you or both of you have had a, a bad day, a rough day. Maybe there's a little bit of conflict and you recognize, now sometimes you recognize that right off the bat. It's like, okay, we need to go pray and that's awesome. But we're not always that spiritual, are we? Sometimes we, we get into a little conflict and the best thing to do is to go to another room to be alone, just have some time just to sort things out, to think through, to pray, to process, and then if necessary, perhaps even to come back to repent, to apologize, and make things right again. That's the loving thing to do. Parents, if you have teenagers, you know the best thing to do sometimes is just go to your room, just go be alone, <laughs> give them some time to work through some things. So, and that's what Paul does. He gives them some space he knew he needed to keep his distance from them, but he did write them a letter, and in this letter, he confronted them, so that that wasn't easy. Continuing verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul had to confront their sin, and when he did, it brought him to tears. He didn't enjoy doing this. Now, for me, this is one of the most difficult things to do as a pastor, to confront someone who is living in some kind of sin, whether it's uh, uh, perhaps alcohol or drugs or some kind of sexual deviant lifestyle, things that Scripture is very clear on that, that I'm aware of that I need to confront. I mean, anybody who's been in ministry knows this is like one of the least, uh, least fun things to do. And if you're a Christian and you know another person who is a Christian, that you're supposed to confront them. You're supposed to challenge them on their lifestyle. As a pastor, I must do that, and I never take pleasure in that. In fact, no one should ever take pleasure in confronting other people. Then you've, you're, doing the wrong, you're doing it the wrong way, the wrong heart. But we should, out of compassion and wanting to comfort them and to restore them, confront those things, to go to them and say, hey, this is sin. Uh, this is wrong. It's destroying you. It's destroying your family, and it's destroying your relationship with the Lord. And you need to repent. You need to turn from this sin, from this activity. So he says, I wrote this in much affliction. And he says in the middle of verse 4, not that you should be grieved. He's saying, I didn't write this to hurt you. I did it to help you. I did it so I could bring you back in alignment with God. Proverbs 21, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul wanted them to experience the joy that comes from peace and reconciliation with God. But that can't happen until that sin is confronted and confessed. So Paul says, I didn't write these things to make you worse off, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul had love for the church in Corinth. 
His goal was not to grieve them, but to love them. So he demonstrated compassion in action for the church, and it was manifested in two ways. One, he kept his distance. He gave them some space uh, to, to repent. He knew that was the best thing right now for them. The second thing he did is he wrote them a letter. And in that letter, he did confront their sin. That is real love. But we not only see Paul's love for the church, we also see his love for the sinner. Now, as we go through this second point, we are speaking of an individual who is a believer. So when I use the term sinner, as believers, we don't identify with what we were. We've been transformed and changed. But in this situation, that's what we are referring to, someone who is actively living in sin. Verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much, too much sorrow. What is he talking about? Well, when Paul wrote his first letter, or first Corinthians, it was a church that had all kinds of problems. It was one of the most troubled churches in the New Testament. Paul had to write to them because there was a man in the church who was living in open rebellion and sin. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Even the world didn't do what, what was happening here that a man has his father's wife. So there was a man in the church having an incestuous relationship, and what made it even worse was that the church wasn't doing anything about it. In fact, they were actually proud of the fact they weren't doing anything about it. They're like, hey, look how tolerant we are. Look how, look how open. We don't want to confront any, anyone. We just want you know, peace at any price. That was their attitude. But you cannot have peace without purity. You can't have biblical peace without purity. And I'll, the, church is, the church pure is the church peaceful. And I'll add, the church pure is the church powerful. If we want power, we need, there, there needs to be purity. Well, he continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this thing might be taken away from among you. Paul said, you have to confront this guy. Now, how were they to do that? Well, Matthew 18 tells us the steps and how we're to go about this. Jesus lays out how we are to approach church discipline or confrontation. We see in Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So if you have a friend and they're in the church, they're a believer, they, they say they're a believer and they're in, a, in the church, and all of a sudden they get caught up in something that you become aware of and they won't stop, well, what do you do? You go to them. You say, hey, I love you. Uh, I want to help you. You need help in this area. This, this, this is what scripture says, and, and you're doing this. You need to repent. So you need to go talk to them. And if they hear you and if they repent, then praise the Lord. It's over. The whole process stops there. Re they are restored. But, verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if they blow you off, and by the way, be gracious in this. I mean, go to them, talk to them several times. You don't just say one little time and then, okay, now we're bringing in the troops. You know, I'm just bringing in more people. Be gracious. Go over that with them a few times. Plead with them to change, to repent. But if they don't, then take one or two more. Now, these one or two more, these individuals, they should already know uh, something about what, what's going on in this situation. You don't just, hey, come with me, and I'll tell you what's going on along the way, and then you're just spilling their sin in front of others. You're just exposing their sin. No, love covers sin. Most likely, if it's gone on that long, you're probably going to have one or two other people who are aware of the situation. Go to them, and in love, go to this person and say, hey, we care about you. We care about you and your relationship with the Lord. We want to see some change here. Verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, this is Matthew 18, verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Jesus says, put them outside of the church. And you're like, wait, what? Why? That's horrible. They, they can't ever come back to church? No, that is not the goal. The idea is that they get so beaten up back in the world that they recognize, man, I was wrong. I, I was wrong. And then they come back and they say, please forgive me. And with the church in Corinth, Paul had told them back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, you need to put him outside the church. It had to go all the way to this last step of Matthew 18. And the Corinthian church, they did that. They obeyed uh, Paul's instructions. And here's the problem. They disciplined this man, but they never restored him back after he repented. And in fact, just the story as it goes after 1 Corinthians, this man does repent of this sin. He heeds their correction, but they never brought him back in, uh, which is the whole purpose of church discipline, is to restore them back into fellowship. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Restore them. Restore them. The Corinthian church disciplined him, and then they abandoned him. So the Corinthian church was a church, they lived in two extremes. Uh, they were either extremely lenient, super tolerant, and then they were extremely harsh. Uh, we're to be neither of those, of those things. So this is what Paul is talking about in verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. When sin is undealt with, it causes the whole church grief. But he tells them in verse 6, I don't want you to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. He's saying, hey, you disciplined him. It worked. Now that's enough. Okay, lighten up. So that on the contrary, verse 7, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. He's saying now is the time to restore him. This man is asking for forgiveness, so forgive him. And Paul told them to do more than just to forgive, he says, comfort him. Welcome him back. Open your arms and welcome him back into the fellowship. And in Luke 17, Jesus made it very simple. 
He said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's pretty simple. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. This man repented. So Paul now says, forgive him, lest he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Sorrow can overcome a person. And by withholding restoration and forgiveness from him, they were risking ruining him and causing him to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That's why the church and why believers need to say, hey, you're forgiven. We forgive you. We accept you. We want to restore you back to fellowship. Now, what's interesting here is nothing is ever said about the woman this man was sleeping with. We don't read anything about that in here. By all accounts, it seems that she is an unbeliever and not part of the church. So why didn't they rebuke her? Well, she's not part of the church. I don't know about you, but I'm not shocked when unbelievers sin. I mean, I know it's like, wow. We shouldn't be surprised. I mean, that there's, we think, oh, there's so much immorality in our culture. Yeah, it's called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sin is pleasurable for a season. And so we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, what did, what did you expect? But a Christian is different. And a Christian is held to a different standard. They have been forgiven and then sanctified by Christ. So I expect a believer to live differently than an unbeliever, that our outward lives are reflecting Christ, that we're walking in obedience to the Lord. And so we are held to a different standard. It's the same as in a family. You know, my parents believed in discipline. Uh, they, they disciplined me. They spanked me at times. They strongly believed in correction and discipline. And I had some friends growing up that had, they, I, I say they had worse behavior than I did. Maybe their parents would say something different. I don't know. But uh, they, they would get into trouble. And when they acted up or they did something, my parents didn't spank them. Um, I wish they would have sometimes, uh, but they didn't because that kid was not part of our family. That, that's, that's between him and his parents. But I was. So this is a family thing, and you dealt with it as a family. But now this person in the church family, he's repentant. So as a family, they, get, they were to get around this person. They were to forgive that person and lo- lavish love upon him lest he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. You know, sorrow itself can be a good thing if it's godly sorrow. We, we, we're going to see this later in our study of 2 Corinthians, but in chapter 7, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So when a person is wrong and they are in sin, that sorrow is good. But once they repent of it, there should be no more, no more sorrow. There should only be restoration. There's healing. There's forgiveness. There's joy. But if you don't restore a person who has repented, that would be overwhelming. And they, they will be overwhelmed with sorrow. If there isn't forgiveness extended to that person who, who has been reprimanded, They can begin to get bitter. They can become angry. And that's why it's so important, back to the family analogy, that's why it's important for parents not to exasperate our children. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, 
You, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Don't put unattainable expectations on them. Don't exasperate them. And when you give them correction, be quick to forgive. Same idea in the church. So Paul says, verse 8, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, I'm testing you, church. Church, you need to discipline this guy. And they did. They passed that test. Here in 2 Corinthians, he's doing the same thing. I'm putting you to the test. However, this time, you better forgive and bring him back in. Verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. He's saying, even though I'm not there, extend mercy. You extend forgiveness to this man, and I am in agreement with that. And then this, this verse here, verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Paul wanted the church to restore this man because he didn't want him to be overwhelmed with sorrow unnecessarily. But another reason he wanted the church to restore him is lest Satan take advantage of us. Not just advantage of the individual, but advantage of us, the church, the whole church. Satan will look for every opportunity he can to destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ. That word advantage here, in the original Greek language, it means to cheat someone out of something that belongs to them. It's like someone who cheats someone out of their, tries to cheat someone out of their inheritance or out of their their money or something that is rightfully theirs. I was reading a recent story. We were talking about artificial intelligence earlier this morning with, with a group of guys. But this is a story. Artificial intelligence is making phone scams more sophisticated and more believable. That scam artists are now using the technology to clone voices including those of friends and family, cloning their voices and using that to try to take advantage and rip people off. So you get a phone call from your grandmother or something or a loved one, hey, I'm in trouble, I need money, and it sounds just like them because it's, they've cloned the voice, using that to take advantage and rip people off. That's what Satan tries to do, to cheat believers out of what is rightfully theirs when things are not handled the correct way. First, for the individual, if a person sins and you don't forgive them, Satan uses that to just pile on the person that's blown it. Agree, we agree. They've blown it, but Satan uses that just to pile on and pile on. Yeah, you're a loser. Yeah, you you don't deserve forgiveness. In fact, I wouldn't even go to church anymore. Uh, Why would you want to be around people who are going to judge you anyway? You can't live up to their standard, so why? Why go back? Or why pray? You know, God's not listening to you. It's not going to make a difference. That's what the enemy does. And they can become so discouraged, they begin to believe the lies, and Satan rips them off from their spiritual inheritance. And he wants to do that to us. So Satan will take advantage of the individual, but he will also take advantage of the whole church. He says, take advantage of us. Warren Wiersbe 
writes, when there is an unforgiving spirit in the congregation because sin hasn't been dealt with in a biblical manner, it gives Satan a beachhead from which he can operate in the congregation. That's so true. Satan will use that attitude, that unforgiveness, to launch other assaults in the church, assaults of criticism and bitterness. Satan looks for anything he can, and when these things begin to spread like a cancer throughout a congregation, the whole, ch- the whole church body gets ripped off. And of course, a lot of individuals in the process. So it is important that we understand the ploys of our enemy. Notice Paul ends, verse 11, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan has specific devices or strategies that he uses against us to take advantage of us. Now, Paul could say he was not ignorant of Satan's strategies. Unfortunately, many Christians cannot say the same thing. They don't even recognize that the enemy is constantly looking to oppose them. So they're not even on guard. But we need to be vigilant. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, meaning be alert. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Because your adversary, that's your enemy. Yes, you have an enemy. And you may be thinking, well, you know, I work really hard to not have enemies. <laughs> That's great, but we have one. I'm sorry, we have an enemy, like it or not. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Resist him. The problem is you won't resist him if you don't even know you're being hunted. And that's what's described here. Like, you are being hunted by your adversary, the devil. Be alert. Now, I'm not saying we go looking for demons under every rock and around every corner. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're seeking the kingdom of God, if you're seeking to proclaim Christ, if you're seeking to advance the gospel, to proclaim his name, you will be opposed. You will be opposed. Now, if nothing's happening like that in your life, it could be that maybe it's because you're just on the sidelines, you're just kind of watching life happen, watching things happen. But if we are living the Christian life, there will be opposition to us in some form or fashion. And so it's important to not be ignorant of his devices. So some questions to consider. Are you allowing the Spirit to make you aware of Satan's strategy against you right now? Are you allowing the Spirit to speak to you and make you aware of those things? What weak point is he trying to exploit in your life? And where is Satan trying to get a foothold into your life. Are you aware of those situations? Are you aware of those maybe situations you don't need to be in or places you don't need to be? Are you ignorant of his devices? So, okay, how do you resist the devil? It says in verse 9 there, resist him. Well, obviously, we need to read God's word. We need to know what God's word says. We need to apply God's word, not just reading it, but doing it, applying it, seeking to obey it. We need to pray to spend time with the Lord in prayer. You know, those, those basic fundamentals of living the Christian life. But in context of what we're talking about here, we also need to forgive. We need to forgive because unforgiveness in a marriage, unforgiveness in a friendship, unforgiveness in a family, and unforgiveness in a church 
gives Satan a foothold. You're giving him space. It's as if you're inviting him in to take over. When we, un- we, when we withhold forgiveness, it says if we're inviting the enemy in, and an unwillingness to forgive gives Satan a foothold. And Satan's strategy, his devices, has always been the same. It's nothing new. It's always the same. Divide and conquer. He wants to divide and conquer, whether it's a marriage, a family, or church, whatever it might be. But listen, whenever you decide whether this is corporately as a church or individually as a person, when you decide to forgive another person, it sets you free. It sets you free. Why should I forgive that person? Because when you do, you will be set free. You are set free from that. You're not allowing that person who has sinned against you to control you any longer. You've been letting them live rent-free in your head. Kick them out. Don't let them live there. How? Forgive them. And when you forgive them, Satan has no control anymore. You are set free. It sets you free. If a brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. How many times? 70 times 7. Not not 490. On and on and on and on. Keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. Do it lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So we see that Paul's compassion in action here uh, by instructing the church to restore the sinner, because in doing so, it would prevent the whole church from being overwhelmed by the devices of Satan. So Paul had love for the church. He had love for the sinner. And we also see his love for the lost, beginning in verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Wherever Paul went, his desire was to preach Christ's gospel, the good news that you can have forgiveness for your sins. And listen, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never trusted him for salvation, if you've never experienced the joy and peace that comes from being forgiven, that comes through the forgiveness of sins, you can have that. You can do that today as when we close in prayer. Paul says here, we came to Troas, that's in modern day Turkey, right across from Greece, where a door was opened to me by the Lord. He says, I came with the gospel and opportunities were opened to me and people were responding to the gospel. That's awesome. But then he says, I had no rest in my spirit. Why? Because I did not find Titus, my brother. Titus was one of Paul's closest companions. And Titus was ministering in another city and he couldn't be there. And Paul is bummed about that. You know, one thing that tells us is Paul never saw himself as a one-man show. He loved having his, his close companions, his friends with him, ministering alongside him. And he was missing his brother, Titus, as well as dealing with all the problems in the church in Corinth. So he says, taking leave of them, I depart for Macedonia. But even with all of this that's going on, and he's in tears as he's writing this letter, he says in verse 14, now thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He pauses for a moment and just bursts out into praise. Oh, that that would be our first response 
when we face challenges, when we find ourselves overwhelmed, when there is chaos, that we just stop and say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So Paul launches into this praise. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul is using the imagery of what was called a Roman triumph. A triumphal parade was given to a successful Roman general when he returned from, their, from his conquest. There would be, they would be given this privilege of riding through the streets of Rome on a golden chariot surrounded by his officers. He would be followed by the state officials and the Roman Senate. And behind them would be all the spoils that they would have taken, or at least samples of the spoils that they had taken in that conquest. And then behind them would be those who they had conquered the prisoners of war, those who were captive, and other soldiers, including their officers. And then behind them would be the Roman priests carrying their censers of incense. And this Roman triumph procession would end at the Circus Maximus, where the prisoners would then be used as entertainment, fighting against wild beasts, even against gladiators, usually to the death. Paul takes this image of the Roman world seeing Jesus as the victorious, conquering general in a triumphal parade. This is what he has in mind as he just breaks forth into praise. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He sees himself as part of it. Great. He says God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Isn't that great that we are a part of this? And in this statement, Paul's also wanting the Corinthian church to know he is following Jesus Christ as his general. More than any plan he may have made or any other plan he wanted to do, Paul's plan was to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He's following Jesus. Christ is leading. And for all of us, as his followers, we are part of this great procession. That's Romans 8.37 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And understand this, you don't fight for victory, you are fighting from a place of victory. We are fighting from victory. The victory is already yours in Christ. He's already won the victory. So you have Christ leading the way, we're a part of it, and continuing verse 14, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Fragrance in the form of incense, I already mentioned, that's part of the Roman triumphal parade. They were in the back with the, the incense. Paul likens that fragrance to the knowledge of Christ. He's saying because we are uh, victors in Christ, we want everyone around to smell our lives and to know we have victory in Jesus Christ as well. And as we go forth, we are diffusing the fragrance of salvation the knowledge of Christ to everyone we encounter. But our aroma means different things to different people. Verses 15 and 16, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? So continuing this analogy of the Roman triumph, the aroma that went forth from the incense spoke different things to different people. To the Roman victors, that aroma, was the, the, it smelled wonderful. It was the sweet smell of victory. But to the prisoners, 
That same smell, that same aroma, was the aroma of defeat and sure execution. So it had different meanings to different people. In the same way, the message of the gospel is a message of life to some, and it is a message of condemnation to others. I know we're all familiar with, with John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is an aroma of life. But just two verses later in John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. That's the aroma of death. Now, the message of Christ, the opportunity for victory, it's for everyone. It's for everyone who will accept it and become a part of it, a part of this triumphal procession. But for those who reject it, it is the aroma of death. And Paul adds at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? When Paul thinks of the greatness of God's plan, he wonders if anyone is sufficient to play a role in it. And that's a sobering thought. We are diffusers of the fragrance of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are a fragrance. Now, what kind of odor are we giving off in that? God help us to be a sweet incense that people would smell and being around and say, hey, there's something different about this person. There's something different about them that I want to know more. I want what they have. They see the works going on in your life. And they're drawn to that. So yes, we play an important role in how we present the gospel. We are inefficient in ourselves, but we are sufficient in Christ when we allow Christ to live through us by his spirit. We're allowing the spirit to have his way through our lives. Verse 17, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. The word peddling it has the idea of adulterating or watering it down for gain. Uh, it was the idea of what they would use for someone who was a wine salesman who watered down the wine to get uh, bigger profits. Paul was not like others who watered down the gospel for gain. But as of sincerity, verse 17, but as from God who speak, or sorry, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul was always sincere that or he was he was always aware that his first audience in ministry was the Lord. He knew who his ultimate audience was. Every word he spoke, he spoke in the sight of God. As a messenger of God, he says, you can be a part of the Roman triumph. You can be part of salvation, with the analogy follows. It could be an aroma of life. But to reject it, it is an aroma of death. And as those who are part of the triumph in Jesus Christ, we are to present the gospel because we too have a love for the lost. We have a love for those around us who don't know the Lord. So do we have that kind of compassion in action? Do people see our love for the church? You know, Jesus says they will know that you are Christians by your love for one another. Do we love one another in that way? Do people see that you have love for the sinner? For someone who sins, are we demonstrating love to them by being willing to reach out to, to correct, to, to, re, to bring discipline 
in, with compassion, of course, but to correct and discipline, and then also to restore them. Do we love the sinner to restore them? And do we have a love for the lost? Praying for and looking for open doors to share the gospel of Christ, which is Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead to forgive us of our sins, that we might have life, that we might have abundant life here in this earth and eternal life beyond this earth, and that we might have forgiveness for our sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.